You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. series today, continuing our walk through the Gospel of Luke. The series is called, So You're a Christian, What's Next? In week one, we answered that question by saying we are going to learn how to follow. We're going to learn how to follow Jesus. And then in week two, last week, Pastor Philip Blinson came and shared a message with us. Uh, and if, in, in case you were not here or haven't heard the message, I would really strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it. What the Lord laid on his heart was very impactful. Uh, he will be back with us on February 4th for just a quick informational meeting. What he shared with us is, so if you're a Christian, what's next? You care for the orphans and the widows. As a Christian, we should care for the orphans and the widows, and he'll be back with us on February 4th to share more information uh, through the organization Families for Families of how we as a church body can do that. But today, if you're taking notes on your bulletin or in some other form, what we're, how we're going to answer the question is we're going to say, so you're a Christian, what's next? Christians get to live out our newfound identities in Christ. Christians get to live out our newfound identities identities in Christ. And I want to dive straight into our text as we've got a lot to cover this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, I would strongly encourage you to just lift your hand. We've got an usher in the back. He'd love to bring you a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, this is a gift from us to you. We value the Lord's Word and we want you to as well. So let's pick up there in verse 17. The first part, it says, the 72 returned with joy. Now, what we need to know, let's stop right there. What we need to know is that this is picking up right in the middle of a moment. So we started this moment a couple of weeks ago, and we're picking back up in this moment today. And what clues us in on that is what? 72 returned. So obviously the 72 were sent, and previously Jesus sent these 72 to make proclamation of the kingdom of God. Now in preparation for their proclaiming, he gave them a, what I would say is a rather bleak uh, kind of pregame speech. Let's go back to what he said. If you'll flip just a, a few verses with me, back to verse 3 in chapter 10. This is Jesus looking at the 72. Now keep in mind where these guys are, right? He's about to send them, and this is Jesus' words to them, like, hey, get ready, right? You're expecting something really moving and powerful. And here's what Jesus says to the 72 in verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. Really encouraging. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. I don't know about you, but I am ready to go to war for this dude, right? Worst pregame speech ever, if that's all we heard was those words. As I was kind of preparing for this sermon, I started to think about, you know, there's some really bad pregame speeches out there. And I found one in, in specific. A guy named Jameis Winston. You may know him because he was very rich and yet stole crab legs somehow. And he's playing in the NFL, and he's with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at this point, and he's getting ready to play Houdat Nation. Anybody know who that is? That's the Saints. Okay, just making sure it's NFL season. We're getting ready. So Jameis Winston is with the team, and what he decides to do is he puts his hands in the form of a W, this is not West Side, but to win for him, right? And he begins to like pretend to eat his fingers. 
and he looks at his team and is like, I'm going to get me a dub tonight. Who else is going to get one? I'm going to eat me a W. And the rest of them in the back are like, is this guy insane? Watch this. Watch. Just see. Watch. Maybe. There's an offensive lineman in the back looking at him like, bro, what are you doing? <laughs> right? Like, worst pregame speech ever. And I think to a degree, there's a chance that maybe some of the disciples who are listening to Jesus are receiving this same type of message. Hey, go out, and you're going to go as a lamb amongst wolves. You're not going to have any money. You're not going to have a knapsack. You're not going to have anything, but you're going to go out and do this. Imagine if this was a pregame speech. What would they have heard? What, what would they have received? Now, there's obviously more going on here because what we know from the text that we just read in verse 17 is that there is miraculous victory that happens from this moment. Let's go back to that verse. Verse 17. The 72 returned with a loss. No. They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now I want to stop there and I want to take a turn, if you will. If you'll just bear with me. If you'll permit me, I want to take a second and I want to teach you something called hermeneutics. And I know you're like, okay, cool, I needed a nap this morning anyway, but just, just bear with me. Hermeneutics. So before I give you the definition of what it is, well, never mind, it's up there. <laughs> I want to just tell you, I, I believe the reason that I want to take this sidestep, the reason I believe this is important, especially for this text, but our day and age as well, is because we get to texts like this and others in our quiet times and our daily plans for reading, and we don't quite know how to break them down and understand what is being said. And so if you come across this text in your daily reading, you may come across a whole lot of different types of interpretation and ways to see this and go, oh, wow, man, this is thing, this is a thing. And, and if you have a bad hermeneutic, meaning a, a bad theory or methodology of interpretation, basically a way to which we study the Bible, you could pull out all kinds of weird things that aren't actually true. And so I want to take just a moment and, and walk you through how to study the Bible, or at least the, the broad scopes of how I study the Bible, and I'll give you just some things like that. So we looked at hermeneutics. It's the theory and methodology of interpretation, meaning it is the way in which we study the Bible. Biblical hermeneutics is the way in which we study the Bible itself. Hermeneutics can be applied to all sorts of different areas, but biblical hermeneutics, there are four different types of biblical hermeneutics. Stay with me. I know some of you are going, this is the most boring stuff in the world, and some of you are going, man, this is interesting. So let's meet in the middle, okay? The first style of biblical hermeneutics is literal, meaning when you read the text, we read literally plain meaning out of it, okay? The second is moral. So when you read the biblical text, what you're looking for is kind of a multiple layer of meaning. This approach uh, supposes to reveal the ethics behind a text or maybe a different meaning. 
A lot of times in, in Jewish culture, when they would read a history, this is what, where they would go to. They would go to moral because the history wasn't just history. There were ethics being taught inside of it. This, the third is allegorical. This is kind of looking at the biblical narratives as having a secondary level of meaning. And then the fourth is anagogical. This is how we interpret scripture in view of eternity, in view of the life to come. So these are the four different ways that we kind of study through Scripture. Seminarians and doctoral students and professors and all the people who are way smarter than me, this is how they look at how we study Scripture. Now, you might be asking, why are there four different types? And you're certainly asking, why does this matter? But I'm going to get there. So why are there four different types? It's because in your Bible, how many books are there? 66, I'm so proud of y'all. You know, if I had a gold star, you'd get it. So, there are 66 books in the Bible. You can think of it like 66 letters. Of these 66 books or letters, there are seven different types of literature. Seven different types of literature. What do you mean? Well, here we go. So, the first five books are called the Book of the Law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, whatever you want, however you want to call that. The second style is the history, right? The Kings, Chronicles, Judges. Then you move on to the wisdom literature. This is kind of poetry. This is, uh, do I have a typo up there? Poety. Great. Fantastic. So, wisdom literature. This is Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Then you move on to the prophets. Micah, Nahum, Ruth, Esther. Then you move on to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you move on to the Epistles. Ephesians, Romans, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John. Then you move on to the apocalyptic writings, right? Parts of Daniel, mostly all the Revelation. And all seven of these genres make up what we call the Bible. And what we need to know is that when we read the Bible, we don't read every book in the same fashion. Here's what I mean. If you read 1st and 2nd Kings in a similar fashion of trying to understand what does this mean, as you read Revelation, you, are, you might be lost. If you've ever read Revelation, you're understanding what I'm saying because 1st and 2nd Kings is written as a history. It's a retelling. Now, is there scriptural things or spiritual things that we can get out of it? Absolutely. When we read some of these things that John sees in Revelation, first off, we know that it's futuristic, so future shouldn't be read as history, right? There's also some different clarifications that we need to make sure we understand. Here's a good example. There was a guy several years ago, Michael Gunger. He was in a band called Gunger. He wrote a song called Beautiful Things. Many of you may know it. At one point in time, he looked at Scripture like this. I don't know why my lights just did that. At one point in time, he looked at Scripture as a method to which to understand all the different ways, and he would... <laughs> so, what he then did is he started looking at things backwards. And so when he read Noah's story, no longer did he read Noah's story in the flood like a history. He read it very differently. He read it like allegory. Why is that important? Because if the, if the Bible records Noah in Genesis as a history, and you read it as an allegory, does that mean the flood actually happens? No, according to that person, because it's allegory. Do you see how this changes and shifts everything? Hopefully you do. So, we're in the Gospels. 
The Gospels are written as a history of Jesus. And so you could say, oh, we read these as history. But think back. There are seven different types of literature. We have a gospel as one in itself. So there is a portion of the gospels we read as history, but there are also another portion of the gospels that we read as allegory or as deeper meaning. So hermeneutically, what I mean, study-wise, when we go in to understand scriptures, we do not just read Luke as a literal thing. This will make more sense, and here's just in just a moment. Beginning with the verses that we just read, in verse 17, we could read them and we could carry them on to the next several verses behind them, 18 and 19 specifically. And we could have a great deal of debate, and much, there is much deal of debate among theologians about what does this mean? And what I want to do with you today is I want to disagree with pretty much everyone who's ever, ever had a debate about this scripture. And here is why. Because this scripture is not talking about what they think it's talking about. Let's dive in. So Paul in 1 Timothy 4 says, don't waste your time on endless debate. So let's go back to those verses in 17 through 19. Let's read it as literal. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, many will read this text, and they will pull out meaning from those alone, those verses alone, and they will come up with some sort of theological understanding that goes like this. The 72 had authority over demons. They had authority over serpents, snakes. They had authority over scorpions, and what does the scripture says? They had authority over all power of the enemy, meaning Satan. Oh yeah, and nothing shall hurt them. Five literal understandings. This is problematic. Why? Because if you go and then study the apostles' life, what you will see is that most all of them, if not all of them, did in fact have pain. Things hurt them. Peter is crucified in his death, and because he doesn't find himself equal to Jesus, he's actually crucified upside down. So a literal understanding of this text would go against what we know is true. So what sort of things can we derive from this text? How do we get to a place of understanding in this text. Did the 72 have supernatural powers for a short time? Do Christians still have them today? And if you don't know why I'm pointing this out, it's because many would look at this text as a proof text that you and I have some of these same powers today. You can walk up to a scorpion and, I don't know, without smashing it, like you still have authority over it in some way, shape, or form. And this is why this is important. Because what I want to teach you is how to understand Scripture. You could break this text down in that, that passage where it says Jesus sees Satan fall like lightning. That is actually a reference back to Isaiah 14, which many theologians then debated about, well, is this something that has happened or something that will happen? 
And all of that is fun debate while you're in seminary, but what does that mean for your life? I would ask a better question. Is this what Luke was actually intending, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for us to get into hours and hours and hours and hours of debate about whether we have power over serpents, scorpions, and nothing shall hurt us? So I want to teach you two things important to hermeneutics, to study the Bible, okay? The first one is exegesis, not J-E-S-U-S, but that spelling up there. Exegesis is what we do at Piedmont and what many good churches around us do. It means that we walk through the Bible in the full context. Even if we're preaching a topical sermon series, what we do is we look at the whole of the text that we're preaching from, and we say what came before, what came after, and what is the context in which someone is saying what they're saying. The word exegesis literally means to lead out of. So we find definition and meaning from the thing that we're leading out of. What many will do when they misinterpret Scripture, or sometimes when we read like a Scripture of the day and we take it out of context, is we do what's called eisegesis. It's meaning we lead into it. Meaning we have what we want to say, and so we Google what Scripture says about money, right? And we find that Scripture. What Scripture says about sex, what scripture says about whatever else in our life, we find one scripture and goes, oh, that's it. And we have no idea what the context is of this statement that was said before or after. Think about if I was to peruse an email you sent me or a text message and I only picked out a portion of the text or the email that you sent me. I could come up with all sorts of meanings of one to two sentences that you sent me, couldn't I? But if I read the whole email or the whole text, I think I would have a better understanding of what you were telling me. Y'all nod your head to say you're, you know, awake. Okay. So, thank you. So in exegesis, what we do is we look at the whole of Scripture, and specifically the whole of whatever text we are in, to say, what is going on in this moment? So, let's use it in this example. If you've been paying attention to where we are in Luke, you will recall what is happening between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus has done all sorts of miracles. He's raised people from the dead. He has healed people. He has seen into their souls. He's done all sorts of amazing miracles, signs, and wonders. He has taught them things that beyond any rabbi of their day, and they were astounded by the way he taught things. He even revealed his true form to a few of them on the Mount of Transfiguration in what can only be explained as a glorious moment. And yet, the disciples weren't getting it. They still didn't truly understand who this Jesus guy is. They're kind of looking at him like, I know you're like really special, maybe better than a prophet. I don't even know what that means. We feel like you're the Messiah, but then we second guess you time and time again. So this is what's happening relationally, relationally with them. If you'll even recall, there's a moment where Jesus looks at them like, how much longer do I got to be with you guys? I'm really tired of doing the same things over and over again, and you're still not getting it. Then Jesus sends 72 people out with a pregame speech that, you know, 
maybe wasn't the best encouragement in the moment. Right? You're reading that, you're going, I'm going out with nothing. But yet something happens inside of these 72. They go out with nothing, and yet they come back joyful and with victory in their voices. Listen to it again. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What they're saying to us is at one point in time they didn't get it, but now, at least in this moment, they get it. They see who Jesus is. What does all this mean? Jesus even confirms this understanding in verse 20. Go down to verse 20. It says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but do what? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So to answer some of the earlier questions about supernatural powers and do we have it, what we do know is that Jesus likely gave them supernatural powers on this journey as long as they followed his will. When they leaned on his power and not on their own understanding and not on their own works, mighty things were done. Somehow, this speech before they went out that likely would have put fear in all of our hearts, inspired them and motivated them to trust in Jesus and the kingdom of God. So the purpose of this text isn't to show us the powers that we as disciples can receive. Rather, the purpose of this text is to reveal to us, to show to us who we are in Christ. We have a new identity in him. And this is the game changer that they receive. If you flip back to that verse 20, it says, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And this is where Jesus expounds upon in his prayer in the following verses. Look how Jesus celebrates in verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced. Like Jesus rejoiced at one moment, just earlier, in a few verses, I'm tired of being with you jokers. They return and you see Jesus rejoice in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Talking about those who are humble in faith. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one who knows the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he says privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desires to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus again reveals to us, just like the parable of the seed, if you'll remember that story, that the things that happen in the kingdom of God happen because the Lord wills it. Jesus had been teaching in discipling these folks to follow after the Lord. And they were not getting it. They were missing the picture. He revealed himself in mighty ways several times. 
But it wasn't until the fullness of the Trinitarian God moved that they got it. Look back at Jesus' words in that verses 21 through 24. It says, he prays in the Spirit to the Father. Trinitarian God working. And then he affirms in verse 21, the function of the Father's will. Listen, I can't explain to you why God works the way he works. But I can explain to you that he does indeed work. Throughout all of our doubt, all of our circumstances, all of our troubles, somehow, time and time again, if we come to him like little children and say, Abba, Father, help me. He shows up. Not by our works, not by the things that we've done, but by the things that he continually does. If you're struggling to believe, I want you to remember that the 72 struggled as well. If you're struggling to trust him with your finances or with your livelihood, I want you to remember that the 72 struggled as well. If you're struggling with sin and you can't seem to let some addictions or strongholds go, I want you to remember that the 72 did as well. They struggled. There were moments when Jesus was frustrated with their struggle. And as great as them going out and making the proclamation of the kingdom of God was, what it was to Jesus and what it was that Luke is telling to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is it was a demonstration of their faith, not a demonstration of their power. It was a demonstration of their faith in the power of Jesus' name. So you can go out and try to talk to a snake. You're likely going to get bit. Or you can lean into this text and understand that God has greater things for you. He even says it to the disciples. Greater things are still to come. And if there's one thing you need to take away from this text is that greater things are still to come in Christ for you. As we're still, I feel like, kicking off a new year. I don't know about you, but like week three is really when I feel like, oh, it's finally a new year that thing that I've already messed up on or I haven't started the new thing, there is still time. And greater things are still to come in Christ. When we receive him and we recognize that our names are written in the book of life, we begin to function in the new identity that he's given us. And I need you to lean into this names written in the book of life thing. This is what it's all about. Like, this is what Jesus is celebrating. Is he celebrating their demonstration of power in his name? Absolutely. But what does he say? You should more so celebrate that your name is written in the book of life. Ephesians 1, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's looking at you and saying, I drew you. I molded you. I breathed breath into your lungs. And I have called you as mine. Will you receive the calling? John echoes this same sentiment 
in Revelation, he repeats back these words of us and our names being written in the book of life before all things. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? It means this. For everyone who professes Jesus as Lord, this is true. I have been adopted as his own child and made an heir of eternal life with the inheritance of all things. He has forgiven all my sins and declared me innocent before God. He will bring me safely to his eternal kingdom and present me blameless before the throne of his glory. He has made his Holy Spirit to dwell in me and brought me into the fellowship of his beloved son. He will give me a new glorious body for the enjoyment of all the endless delights of the age to come. He has made me alive in Christ Jesus and given me the gift of repentance and faith. He will make every pleasure and pain work for my eternal good. I will stand righteous in the court of heaven and have peace with God. He will lead me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I am chosen by God in eternity. I am irrevocably rescued from the terrors of hell. He is omnipotently committed to holding on to me so that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I have been purchased for God's precious possession. I have been ransomed from every evil bondage. He will grant me to see the glory of Christ and be changed into his likeness. He has made me a missionary through the power of his spirit. I have been transformed into a servant, just as Jesus said. Christ has taken my place under the punishment of divine wrath. God has caused me to be born again. He has taken out the heart of stone and put in its, in its place a heart of flesh. He will give me access to the very presence of God, where they will be full of joy and pleasures forevermore. This is who we are in Christ. Scripture says he will do immeasurably more than we ever imagined or dreamt. As you walk through life and the struggles and the valleys come, remember that he longs to call you son or daughter. The only thing that's getting in the way of that recognition, that new name, that new identity of who you are, is you saying yes. Let's pray. God, I pray for recognition. Recognition of each and every one of our sins today. 
that each and every one of us in this room would come face to face with the reality that we are sinners. We, we've missed the mark of the holiness that you've called us to. And because of that sin, we have been separated from you. Scripture says that it, it was more than separation. We were actually deemed dead spiritually. But God, you stepped in. You sent your son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, receiving the penalty of our sin on himself enduring the wrath of God so that we didn't have to. And your word says that anyone who recognizes Jesus as Lord of their life will be saved. God, help us to see that so you're a Christian, what's next isn't just fire insurance. It's living in the identity, the acknowledgement, the understanding that we've been made new, we've been set apart, we've been set free. We have the powers of the supernatural God who created the cosmos living inside us. We have the ability to speak life in your name. So God, as we struggle with things, addictions, day-to-day payments in life, relationships, hurts, habits, whatever it is that we're toting around, God, will you open our hands, open our fists today, this morning, right now, and have us let it all go at the foot of the cross because you already paid it and we don't have to carry it anymore. You have brought us to life in your name. Help us to see that, to walk in that, to own that truth, that we are new. And God's people said, let's stand and worship.